Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from McGregor, Iowa, where I will be working throughout the summer. Uh, and I'm excited to be here. Got a lot of friends and family around that we've all been reconnecting with. And uh, at the same time, I'm thrilled to host Maureen Flores, who is the Vice President for University Advancement at Bentley University in Boston. And Maureen was just sharing how excited she is to be back at the office. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you. Great. Delighted to be here. So uh, just tell me a little bit about your return to work. We are recording this on Tuesday, July 13th. We'll probably be published in a couple of weeks uh, past that. But what is your sort of return to work experience been at Bentley? Sure. Well, I've been coming in periodically over the course of the pandemic uh, as part of the management team to oversee our response to the pandemic and ensure that the university was up and running uh, over the past academic year. But we had the great good fortune of welcoming a new president on June 1st of this year, Dr. Brent uh, Crate. And um, so the management team is kind of committed to coming in two days a week. Um, but I will say it's been a change. First of all, it's been really quiet on campus. Um, secondly, it took me a long time to um, get back into my back to the office routine. Um, it's amazing how you can adapt and get really comfortable with a new routine. And so um, it's been fun, but I, I do enjoy the energy. I've had actually some of my team members back yesterday to meet the president for the first time. For many of them, it was first time in over a year of being here. And I think there's some trepidation, but then there's also the reminder of like, oh, this is why I came to work at Bentley. I really do like it here. I love it. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And you did mention uh, in advance of the show that maybe somebody in your family uh, took a similar approach to the last year as my family did where we, we hit the road. Is that right? Yes, my youngest daughter uh, works in wealth management in New York City, and uh, she decamped from lower Manhattan and uh, got all the way to the West Coast, down to Florida, um, and is now back into New York periodically. But as I said, unfortunately, I watched the entire pandemic from Wenham, Massachusetts, so I'm envious of those of you who, who hit the road and took advantage of that. What was your daughter's perspective, if you don't mind me asking, because I know Wall Street has sort of been one of the sectors that a lot of folks are looking to for guidance on return to work. And even over the last couple of weeks, there have been some competing camps. I think JP Morgan being a firm that is pushing really hard for almost a full return to office, I believe by Labor Day. Uh, and I've seen some other banks, I think maybe Credit Suisse recently, but others as well, um, actually advocating for more flexible approaches. And so I think seeing that play out in, the sec, you know, sectors like finance um, could certainly influence or maybe trickle over to sectors like higher education. But what's your daughter's perspective on that so far? Um, she's with a smaller, very conservative firm, and they're they're also taking the wait and see approach. Interestingly, she works in wealth management, so she and I always say that we're on uh, opposite sides of the same coin. Um, and so much of her work is about uh, relationship management and um, meeting with clients and um, helping them with their portfolios. Uh, so they've adopted a lot of very similar things that our leadership gifts team has as well over the past year. Um, but I think her company, and I have two other adult children who are also in the workforce in different companies, it's interesting to, to watch the Boston companies particularly as they really try to navigate this. And I think everyone, those who are managing it successfully are saying, let's try this for a few weeks see, and touch base, see how it goes. And then let's you know, adjust, pivot and go forward. Um, certainly that's the uh, 
perspective I'm adapting with my team. And I'm also hearing around um, the weekend dinner table when they visit similar approaches from companies. Yeah, no, it's, it's just a fascinating period as we sort of come out of at least the, the intense sort of period of the pandemic where for a year, uh, for the most part, especially in the Northeast, we didn't really have a choice. I mean, it was pretty much predetermined uh, with either local state or, or even some federal guidance um, but now we're in this sort of murky period where it is up to us instead of having to sort of abide by somebody else's rules and leadership roles, we now need to decide what are the right rules for our context and our organization in the next chapter. Uh, and nobody's really sure yet. People might have strong opinions, but nobody truly knows what's going to work. And I can't wait uh, for a year from now to see what sort of lessons we will have learned when we're doing some of this by choice, uh, as opposed to by mandate or necessity. Right, totally agree. I mean, I think for me, one of the great learnings of COVID is that um, the most successful response to this pandemic has been a willingness to um, look at information, absorb information and make decisions and pivot, right? So again, I look back on my team and think about how we do our work I think about my own personal life, like that's how we will be successful going forward, right? We have to just keep having an open mind. So if anything, one of the learnings for the pandemic for me has been um, always embrace change because it's going to come on you anyway. So you're better to ride that wave than to resist the wave. So when you think about a year from now, and usually this is like the end of the episode, but we're just going to dive right in. When you think about a year from now, what aspects of how we changed the business, how the business of advancement changed over the last year by necessity, not by our choice, we had to pivot and adapt. Which aspects of that live on a year from now? And maybe what are the components that uh, actually do revert more to a pre-pandemic context, if that makes sense? And it's okay if you don't have a clear answer at this point, because those are big questions that we're all just starting to navigate. But do you have a, a sense? Well, a couple things come to mind. I mean, one of the things that we really learned in the pandemic is we pivoted very quickly in our um, alumni programming work. Um, and we, we were in the process already of doing much more, um, I would say, interactive hybrid engagement with alumni. And we quickly learned to pivot as a business school and sort of realized that we could talk about like, what is the business of a pandemic? What does all this mean um, for companies as they have to make these pivots? And we found that our alumni were actually really tuning into that information. We also being in Boston had some access through our faculty to sort of some of the dynamic things that were happening like at a Moderna and mm -hmm. other testing sites. So suddenly we became um, much more, I would say, a source of information for our alums, our students and our parents to kind of dial in and use Bentley as a place to gain information. I don't think we're gonna lose that going forward. So I think for us, um, our alumni engagement in fact became a little more substantive than it might've been in the past. Mm. Um, and I think that's been coming for years. You know, once Facebook really took off, we no longer needed a reunion program to find our friends every five years. We're talking to them every day. So what becomes the role of an advancement program? So that would be one thing that I would say um, was a change for us and that we will hang on to. Um, 
The other one that may not stay is we did find great um, success in being able to communicate with our donors and prospects via Zoom. But I still think they're looking, you know, I get the emails like, when are you coming back to Florida? When will you be in New York? When are you guys coming out to California again? Maureen, we haven't seen you in a year. So I think um, going forward for gift officers and relationship management, it's going to be a combination of these things. It may be an email, a phone call, a Zoom, and a visit, but it may not be a visit multiple times a year. And I think you'll be able to move your donors through sort of that relationship management using all of these tools going forward. I think that's really well said. And as much as I've been an advocate for digital and remote and, and, and you know, bringing technology and, and hopefully efficiencies to the sector, uh, I also believe deeply in the importance of in-person relationship building. But I do think the mix of how that time is spent will shift. And I, I suspect the people who are reaching out and, and seeking that visit are existing known supporters where there are already deep ties to the institution. And so I think 100% that is the audience that when we're going to hit the road again, it is to go engage those known existing relationships. At the same time, I remain very confident that a lot of the time and money that was historically spent on field discovery visits that were relatively low yield can be shifted to be much more digital in nature so that we can front load a lot of that discovery relationship building with folks who are interested and willing to engage, then we can do that in this manner and reserve that expense and time for the field when it's truly warranted. Um, and so we'll see how all of that plays out. I could be proved wrong, but I'm optimistic that's uh, likely the case for this sector. And I also bet for your daughter's work in wealth management and other relationship-based businesses, it's going to play out pretty similarly. I agree. I totally agree on that. The other learning from this is I think early on we thought, oh, our older alums are not going to make this transition to technology. And in fact, some of them were really the greatest adopters. They were the people who came back week after week to see what our programming and our engagement was. And so that feeling of like, well, we've got to fly out to wherever our snowbirds are. Um, the fact of the matter is no, we actually had more interaction with them through the mediums, the media that we've been seeing over the pandemic. So we're excited about that going forward. I, I love that. And it makes me think about a, an experience that I had with, uh, with the Brown Football Association that I'm involved with, where we actually did, uh, you know, in the past, we would do these board meetings uh, on Saturday mornings before the football game. And generally, in-person attendees were folks that lived within, you know, 30 to 60 minutes and wanted to go to the game. We'd have this dial-in experience for people who weren't there with terrible audio. They could barely hear what anybody was saying. Somebody'd be <laughs> cracking a joke in the background. Nobody knew what it was. Um, and obviously there was no like face-to-face -face engagement. And I'll just remember the first time that we did one of those meetings via Zoom with our head coach, you could see everybody's face. Everybody had an equal experience from an audio and visual perspective. We had much higher participation than we would ever get in person or even via dial-in. And that's the kind of thing that I hope we never lose because it was just so much more efficient, a better experience, lower cost, and, um, and I think higher impact. Right, agree. And then that time when you do host the in-person event, there will be more incentive for people to come. 
right? It won't be regular. It won't be annual. You know, it may not be monthly, but boy, if you guys are all getting together before the game right. at Brown for this reason, they're probably going to make more of an effort to get there. I think that's right. Yeah. And I'm just trying to figure out how I can get a parking pass for our RV so we can really take tailgates <laughs> to the next level. You don't see a lot of Winnebago tailgating in the Ivy League. So we're going to, we're going to try to figure that out. Um, all right. Well, we've kind of jumped into the, uh, you know, the, some of the views on the future and, and what you've experienced over the last year, but I'd re be remiss if I didn't ask you how you got into the sector in the first place. And one of the things I've really enjoyed hearing from our guests is take me back to Maureen, you know, junior year of high school, who was she, uh, what was she into and how did she end up at Fordham university? Uh, great question. Um, let's see, went to an all girls high school in Washington township, New Jersey. Um, first gen, first in my family to go to college. Um, and, um, I don't know. Do you have siblings, Maureen? I do. I have one, I have one younger brother who followed me to Fordham. So we Got are it. a Fordham family. First gen, um, love that. And so first, what was the kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a first gen student and not having sort of that uh, around the dinner table conversation all the time um, is just so different, which I don't even, I mean, even now, as I think about the conversations we have with our seven and five and two year old versus, you know, what, what we would have had uh, growing up. I mean, it's just so different, but how did you ultimately um, end up at Fordham? Um, at the time, I really thought I was going to be a great investigative journalist. And mm -hmm. so Fordham had a really strong communications program. Um, my family, uh, had been in the New York, New Jersey area for a long time. And my parents always said, why would you leave New York to go anyplace else? So in some ways that limited my college search. Um, and I do love a good city. So um, Fordham fit a lot of that criteria for me. Um, after about a semester, I decided I did not want to be the world's next great journalist and then ended up uh, majoring in English. So uh, the beauty of a school like that was there were uh, so many opportunities for me and um, it was a great experience there. It was a great undergraduate experience. I suspect that there weren't a lot of folks in the English pro program suggesting that you could take this love of writing and uh, even the journalism aspect and that that could lead you to university advancement leadership, probably not the uh, mentorship you were getting. Uh, but ultimately, <laughs> you did start your career in fundraising at Fordham. So what was your bridge to go from the English program to the annual giving program? Uh, I actually had an offer from the Abraham and Strauss executive training program and one from Procter and Gamble and went to see my dean and said, I don't think either of these things are what I wanna be when I grow up. And um, I had been an active undergraduate on student programs and RA. And he said, I think you need to go down and meet our alumni director. Um, had a great meeting with him. He recruited me in. We, the offices were located at Lincoln Center. You know, for someone who loves the city, it was a great place to work. And so um, I started in the alumni office there doing alumni programming. After about a year, Why the director, were the offices yep. located at Lincoln Center? Uh, Fordham has two campuses. So they have a campus at Rose Hill in the Bronx and then a campus down at Lincoln Center. So very traditional uh, campus in the Bronx, and then a much more dynamic one, literally across the street from Lincoln Center for the Performing wow. Arts. I did not so, know that. Yeah. And so, so, what was your initial impression? You know, you spent over five years uh, in that annual giving um, space, and I imagine the beginning it just had to be 
getting a sense of what it is and what the goals are, but then ultimately, uh, I mean, just when did you start to get a sense, Hey, this actually could be my career. Uh, great question. So uh, moved into fundraising. And, you know, at that time, like the, we're now talking the early 1980s, there were not a lot of training programs for fundraising. So you were a little bit at the mercy of the older folks in the organization who might take you under their wing and mentor you. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very fortunate at that time. I met our incoming new president at a staff retreat. Um, turned out his, his nephew and I were college classmates, and he really took me under his wing and taught me fundraising from sort of the CEO perspective of a great president, great college president fundraiser. So um, he Would was that dynamic. ever happen today? Um, well, I mean, college president question. taking, you know, a relatively year junior annual giving. I mean, does that, does, is that possible? Um, boy, I guess well, that really depends on the yeah. president, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is a great reminder of how much mentorship and yeah. um, someone putting their eye out there and looking for the person in the organization and saying, I'm going to give them the passion for my work and and really um, let them see it from my perspective. So I am eternally grateful uh, to Father O'Hare for, for giving me that gift. So. And so when you think about what you learned from him or when you f- reflect on maybe not all the details, but are there one or two lessons or principles that really stand out from those early years? Uh, Relationships matter, matter deeply. Um, uh, Even though he was the college president, I felt for me, and I know many others, many of his donors felt like when he had his time with you, he was paying attention to what you were doing and cared deeply about your work and your perspective. Um, I think the other thing he, he, inspired in me was sort of like the joy for the work. He loved what he was doing. He loved all aspects of what he was doing. Um, He was actively involved in sort of, that was a time when New York City was really undergoing a resurgence. And he worked very hard to find a place for Fordham University in the resurgence of New York City. And I also met, you know, in the course of my work as sort of a young development officer, you do meet trustees, you do meet, you know, sort of the up and coming next uh, level of philanthropist to the university. Um, What I also realized is the person in the advancement office, you see all aspects of the institution and you need to know all aspects of the institution. So for me, I always like to learn something new. So suddenly I found myself learning how the English major who learned how to read a balance sheet. Like those were all exciting things to me as a young person that made me think, well, you know, maybe this career could have legs for the next few decades. And when I think about like when I look at your career path and as we did our pre-interview background research and so forth, I think it is reflective of the fact that one of the really terrific aspects of this work is that you truly can do it almost anywhere from Uh, the smallest community to the biggest city, philanthropy is needed. And while, you know, I'm sure you you periodically made moves that maybe you weren't uh, um, setting out to make, um, it is reflective of the fact that you can go anywhere and thrive in this sector. 100%. I mean, when I was young in this um, business, I was the trailing spouse to my husband, um, which brought us to Boston, which then brought us to Cincinnati, which then brought us back to this area. 
And every city that I lived and worked in, I ended up having sort of a great learning experience in philanthropy, right? I worked at a public university. I ended up at a hospital for a while. And then before I came to Bentley, I did this really wonderful stint at Landmark School, which is a very small school on the North Shore, which I always laugh and say I could ride my bicycle to. But it was at a time when I was raising a family so I could duck out and go to the soccer game or, you know, um, if it was raining, I would say, oh, sorry, it's, I've got a big meeting at the office, can't be there. But, um, you know, so it was, it is one of those things. I think philanthropy is needed everywhere and at different times in your career. Um, I think you can invest your skill set to really make a dis difference at many different size organizations. Yeah, and I, I want to just quickly, when you think about the highlights of those experiences, and just to set context, you went from Fordham to the Harvard School of Public Health, to the University of Cincinnati Foundation, to Good Samaritan Hospital Foundation, to the Landmark School before uh, joining Bentley in 2014. And so it's rare, you know, Jesuit institution to a Harvard school to the, you know, a, a kind of large regional public like University of Cincinnati, healthcare and K-12 uh, sort of private independent school space um, that is really the gamut as far as the categories of higher ed institutions one could raise money for. And so I'm curious when you think about what stands out as being truly distinct, maybe at each of those places, but then also what the, the common principle or lesson learned was. Uh, great question. So um, they were very unique experiences, but I'll always go back to the part that, you know, we are in the people business, right? So finding the people who are passionate about the mission of the organization. Um, and it was also important for me to be passionate about the mission of the organization. There are many institutions that I didn't go to over the course of my career, because I felt that when I was sitting down and in front of someone and asking them to be a donor investor, I had to be invested in as well. So um, I think uh, for me, it's always been about mission driven. Um, many of these organizations didn't have a natural constituency. Um, mm -hmm. You know, at the time I was at the Harvard School of Public Health, you know, the, the work that those alums do is have we not just seen over the last 18 months, so incredibly important. And yet they were not going into the high powered um, paying positions that perhaps maybe the people from Harvard Medical School were. Mm -hmm. So you had to think creatively about your constituencies all the time. And I think that has really helped me through, that's been a thread line through my career. So going from Harvard, going to a public institution where philanthropy isn't always quite um, at the foremost of thinking that the way it might be if you're at a small uh, private liberal arts college um, to a school for students with learning disabilities where again that alumni population is wildly committed to their alma mater um, but they may not be in the in the in the boardroom you'll have a few of those people in the c-suite but not everyone so thinking about what is it about the mission that is going to draw donors and supporters in has been really important throughout my career Let's talk a little bit about the stop at Landmark School because you mentioned getting the science building built and or, or funded was really a game changer for students with dyslexia. And so help me just understand how you're able to take that um, impact potential to the community. I'm sure that those donors were being solicited for other organizations. And I think certainly in Boston, the North Shore, I mean, as collaborative as the sector is, we are definitely competing for 
attention and mind share and share of wallet and, um, and, and obviously trying to make the impact. So what stands out from that experience? Well, I think in that situation, there was an absolute physical plant need. Um, so that was an easy one in terms of it was terrible science facilities and we knew we needed better. But more importantly, going back to sort of what was the mission of that institution, when you have a language-based learning disability, Elementary and high school can be really hard. Part of what those students need to do is really get through the program so that they can launch their lives. They tend not to be sometimes the best readers or the best mathematicians, but many times they are the most creative thinkers. Let's think about Richard Branson who just came back from space last week. A great example of uh, a dyslexic mind that is thinking not at all like you and I probably are. So part of the school's mission was to really think about how do we make learning, um, how do we come to the students with the learning that, that will be most meaningful for them? And so the sciences and having tactile project areas for them to do the work, that was really all part of the conversation. And I happened to meet a parent, I was in Texas and I was really doing kind of a discovery visit. We ended up having dinner at night and she began to tell the story of how she found the school for her child talked about her father actually being um, a, a, an engineer um, and having this deep interest in science. And we sort of knit it all together. And all of a sudden I thought, wait, that's on my project list somewhere down the line. If I can bring in the lead gift in, I bet we can do the rest of it. So at that time, it was truly a transformational gift. And I remember going back to my hotel and thinking, oh my gosh, I don't have a brochure. I don't have a, I have nothing. And the head was coming down the next day. And I literally like, created it all using whatever tools that I had in the business center. And we came back with a seven figure gift that launched a really great construction project for that school. So not an enormous gift in the grand scheme of, you know, Boston big dollar fundraising, but a transformational gift for that institution. That one felt great. I mean, it's amazing. Like what if you hadn't gone on that specific discovery visit? What if you hadn't gone to the business center, like, is it possible that that building might not be there? Maybe it would have gotten done another way, but it is just really interesting to think about some of those moments that can really be inflection points for a specific gift that can lead to a specific project that obviously leads to tremendous impact. It's almost like in Back to the Future, it's like those moments when, you know, if this happened, then the future looked like this, otherwise it went a different direction. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think, again, when I talk with gift officers, and we all sort of go around the table and think about where what's working, what's not. So much of the time we spend is sort of trying to increase our own listening skills, because you have to hear something first, that then gives you an idea. And you've got to know what your institution needs and wants and can accommodate. And that's all of a sudden, then you can start to make things happen. So uh, my favorite expression, and I often say it to my team, is, you know, fundraising is all about work, 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 serendipity, right? You put the time in, you think about it, you be strategic, but in the end, it's going to be that lucky break that comes and you better jump on it. And then that's that's where success lies. I think that's what life's about. <laughs> I mean, I think it applies <laughs> to life. Um, well, thank you for sharing that story. At the same time, when we asked you your perspective on it, the next big step forward for advancement, you said that we should remind people that mega donors aren't the solution for all, right? So in that case, that sort of pillar investment was critical for Landmark. Um, 
But at the same point, you believe that the small and, and sort of steady support and voices really do have an impact, which candidly, I think everybody has to say to a certain degree, it seems like you really believe it, but it's hard when you're working with finite resources and ultimately in pursuit of bigger and bigger revenue expectations to truly invest in the, the middle and base of the pyramid, if you will. Right. Um, and I think that's been one of the big sea changes, I would say, over the last 10 to 15 years of, of fundraising, right? We all used to invest so heavily in our annual fund, the pyramid. And then the pressure came on, you know, to bring in the mega gifts, you know, but if you clear out that pipeline and you haven't been cultivating the next generation of donors, somebody else has. And I think that's really key with this millennial and Gen Z generation, right? They are completely different. They think completely different than we do. And they do believe sort of in the collective, don't they? I mean, look at the, the last year in our country, the way we've come about change when you think about um, sort of the racial justice work that we are doing. Um, that we are being asked to do in our own um, in our own organizations. Um, that is not the work of one individual. That's the work of the collective. So how do we take that mindset of, you know, we all have to do this together and move philanthropy forward that way. So I think, yes, it's hard to go into the board boardroom because you're right, cost per dollar raise is very expensive with that group of people, but you have to then do both, right? You've got to have a couple of key things happening up here and people are focused on that, but you still have to do that work across the bottom of the band and it will yeah. come to fruition. Someday. I know you mentioned you've got exposure to Procter & Gamble, you've got exposure to Wayfair, uh, and obviously those companies are all thinking about how do we really create lifelong relationships with our consumers and how do we recognize that, uh, you know, the payoff is going to be over that loyalty. It can't just be through the, the one-time purchase, just like we can't build an advancement shop on a one-time giving day gift that doesn't uh, renew and, and grow. And so I do think there's a lot we can continue to learn from uh, consumer companies, tried and true uh, pillars like Procter and Gamble, and also uh, you know internet-based uh, e-commerce experiences like Wayfair. I agree. I mean, I think we have to continually look out and see what is happening. That is the experience that our donors are having, and so if they're having that experience there, higher education nonprofits, we need to be able to replicate not necessarily at that level, because again, we are nonprofits, but we mm -hmm. need to be able to take the best of that and put that into the work that we do going forward. So when you think about the next chapter, and I, I you know, before we get to that, I got to learn a little bit more about the, uh, the Bentley Athletics Fundraising story. Athletics Fundraising is, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, near and dear to my heart. I also have some, uh, some good friends uh, in the Boston community who uh, I've seen sharing photos in, uh, in this amazing new facility. And so I just want to know a little bit more about um, that experience and candidly sort of the, maybe the challenges of, of making the case for athletics relative to other uh, academic investments or, you know, did you face any pushback? Um, but how do you kind of rally the community around that? And, and ultimately, why are you excited about the outcome? Well, I think we have a really interesting story here because we are primarily a division two athletics program with a D one program in our men's hockey program. Um, and so um, 
again, I think you want to think about where the donors are. In this particular case, um, this donor had um, a, a child who had come through our athletic program, and they had really found the value of coaches and um, people who really drove that student's success to be a successful business person while they were also playing athletics at Bentley. And when the time came to have this conversation about them as a former parent, um, about how they might support the university, um, they sort of said, you know, I love that idea of D2 athletics. But the interesting thing was they also said, I also want to make this a longer term investment. I know you, Maureen, want to bring in a big seven figure gift because your board will be happy to hear that. Um, but I want to do something a little bit differently that's going to make sure that we're investing in the program for the long term and that I can be a part of um, of really encouraging the leadership in um, our athletics program to go forward. And we also knew that that gift was coming in. It was gonna come in over a long period of time and it was gonna come in when we were doing a transition in leadership. We had, um, our former athletic director was here for 25 years and we knew he was retiring and his successor would come in. So we needed to bridge the gap of, of two um, franchises, if you will, of leadership of the organization and keep a donor with us. So it's been very interesting working with both athletic directors as they think about how best to utilize those funds going forward, and then sort of how to ensure that the donor is still part of, of making it happen. So in that case, I feel like, um, you know, I'm the convener of conversations between people. And again, I think that's one of the really important roles that you play as an advancement professional is you've got to listen to what everybody needs, wants, and what the outcome is. And that's where, how you really end up with um, sort of a successful gift opportunity for everybody. I love the convener uh, um, expression that you just used. And I, and I have to ask, I, I've heard from a handful of our partners and guests that the ability to be a convener in this Zoom economy that we're now living in has actually really improved. Instead of it being about the president's schedule and that dean and this faculty and that AD and that coach and trying to figure out if they can get on the road to see the donor or when the donor's on campus, if everybody's around on the same day, well, now we can maybe just get together around a Zoom box. And so have you experienced that as a convener? Um, any like fun experiences that maybe never would have happened before the pandemic where being a Zoom link away has made it easier to connect people? Yes, we, um, we have a, a faculty member here who's doing some really dynamic work in um, the area of healthcare behavior, which again has been one of those things over the last year, everyone has a lot more interest in. And you know, early on when we were working with her, we would bring an advisory group in and we, just to your point, we try to all get together. This one might miss it, he can't make it, she can't be there. Um, we've ended up uh, doing these sort of sessions over the summer probably every six weeks we bring the group together with a faculty member. So we have someone in New York, we have someone on the Cape, we have someone in Boston. We have a combination of current parents and alums of the university. And my role is to sort of be the convener with the, fa with the faculty member and these folks. Well, they have loved meeting one another and are finding um, that those relationships are actually furthering their own professional interests which 
is having the byproduct of making them kind of come back to us and say, okay, how else can we help you? So I'm not sure we would have ever been able to get this group of people together in a room ever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet now we find that we can get them together almost every six weeks. I think we're about to do our fourth session together. And I think, wow, that's extraordinary. We would have never done that. I love it. And so it's like, how do we get back to some of the experiences that we long for, but also double down on what you just shared. I mean, I've heard international alumni engagement that never would have happened before. I've heard about parents being able to be, you know, connected more efficiently. So um, I, I know it won't be easy to figure out what's the right balance of trying to get that group together in person versus just continuing to roll with what's working really well. Um, but I think that that's, uh, you know, that's going to be fun to navigate. So I uh, want to be sensitive of time. Um, this has flown by, but I do also just want to sort of get your perspective on why you feel like your best days are ahead of you at Bentley um, and that you're um, so excited about the potential for philanthropic impact. And frankly, uh, your opportunity to hire and grow the team as we sort of move out of this uh, challenging year. Great questions and a lot of them. Um, so I am, I am, I do feel our best days are ahead at Bentley. Um, we, like many other schools, face many, many challenges going through the pandemic. Uh, we had the good fortune of being in good financial shape going into the pandemic. We're coming out of the pandemic feeling okay. Um, Certainly, I feel like, you know, we all went into this and thought how many schools will close over the course of the pandemic. Unfortunately, it's been very few for our industry. Um, But I think the other thing that we really learned over the last year is that business can really help solve a lot of problems in the world. Um, Yes, of course, companies must make money first, but then they can reinvest back in their communities. And as a single cell business university, uh, we're providing the next generation of students with the skills and the know-how and the commitment to doing doing just that, both here and abroad. Always, when you have a new president join your organization, I think it's a dynamic time for for an organization. And we're really, again, delighted to have uh, Dr. Kreit here with us. Um, We have a collaborative team here. Um, I don't know, it's a good, it's a great group of people. I I, I just, I have to say, some of them were in the office yesterday and and I just was so excited to see people in person again. I've I've met with many over um, on Zoom meetings over the last year, but there is something about getting together as a team. Um, We support each other, we celebrate our victories. I have to say, again, when I started in the business, there was no moves management. There was no documenting your calls. I can remember going in about 1990 to a conference and we came away with a paper grid that we photocopied and we started keeping it monthly by that. That's how we were doing moves management. Um, That's tough work. It is hard work to be out there, um, you know, really, I don't want to say selling your institution, but finding those people to love your place you've got to support each other in that work because you know when one succeeds, we all do. So for Bentley, I feel like our advancement team, that is, that's how we roll here. Um, and so I think if, if that's a great reason to come to work at this university. So hate to be, hate you, to be out there marketing my place, but I love it here. No, market it. That's part of the deal <laughs> here. We really appreciate it. And a uh, uh, couple of things. One, are there specific opportunities open now or do you anticipate new positions opening up relatively soon if, uh, if folks are uh, interested in learning more? 
Yeah, we're actually hiring in our stewardship office because we know that donor stewardship is just a critical component. Like if you bring in, to your point, if you bring in one gift and don't steward it, then you got to start all over again. So we're, we're investing in donor stewardship here. Uh, I think we also have some positions open in our annual giving team. Um, so yes, we do have openings happening yeah. here. We're also, I think, doing some innovative things that, you know, we're really trying really yeah. hard to think about what are the different ways of working with companies like Evertrue to, mm -hmm. to figure out how best to find that next generation of donors. Well, I got to give your team a shout out. We usually don't talk too much about Evertrue products and services on the podcast. That's not the goal. But I will say for those of you listening, um, you might have exposure to some of the new work we've been doing around just monitoring alumni career movement and trying to be more proactive when people are self-identifying as being promoted or switching jobs or retiring. How do we not only you know, track that data, which folks have been doing for a long time and putting in the database, but how do we really start to convert it into this actionable moment in time to build the relationship? And the Bentley team has done some incredible early experimentation. And I think it does align with your, you know, business orientation to really um, not just track the data, but convert it into relationships. And we're seeing some early promising signs there that I suspect, again, in the context of lifelong stewardship, and relationship building, um, I think you're going to be well positioned to be a part of the alumni journey and, and, and create a, a much more virtuous two-way cycle, I, th I think. We are. We're excited about it. Um, yes, you're right. We're, we are always looking at sort of our industry data. We also have career services reports in through university advancement. Right. Um, and we've had a very strong program. So we're finding the synergies between our two teams there is also been uh, really exciting. So the more we can triangulate these things to find better data, to find our people, I think that's where we're going to be successful going forward. We love triangulation at Evertrue, and I think my team jokes uh, every time that I bring it up, but I'm, I'm glad that you did as well. So Maureen, if folks want to stay in touch or get in touch, you're on LinkedIn. Is that the best way to reach out, or is there anything else you'd recommend? Uh, LinkedIn is great. Always, you can shoot me an email. Uh, it's mflores at bentley.edu, but we, uh, I'm on the website, uh, the university website. You can always find me there on the administrative team. Terrific. Well, I know that as you settle back into the actual office with this being one of your uh, first days with lots of new colleagues and a new president, you don't want to spend any more of it on Zoom. So I will uh, <laughs> let you go, but I just cannot thank you enough for giving us a window into your world at Bentley and for sharing uh, you know, the optimism you have and why you have it uh, as we approach and really dive into fiscal year 22 here. Great, Brent, it's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Maureen. Be well. With that, Brent, signing off from McGregor, Iowa. Take care.